The Mystery of the Supernatural by Henri de Lubac Chapter 4 Towards a Real Gratuitousness The question is thus a circumscribed one, but nonetheless important for that. In effect, one of the chief motives that have led modern theology to develop its hypothesis of pure nature to such an extent that it has become the basis of all speculation about man's last end has been the anxiety to establish, as against the apparent deviations of Augustinianism, the supernatural as being a totally free gift. In practice, it has succeeded. One may wonder, however, whether a more rigorous reflection would not fault the theory from this point of view. It would not be the only example in the history of theology of a theory which, though achieving its immediate goal in practice, did not succeed in satisfying the mind from every aspect. Since then, our way of looking at things today cannot be the same at all points as that of the 16th and 17th century theologians. One may ask whether the theory elaborated by some of them can be adequate as a permanent safeguard for the dogma of the complete gratuitousness of the supernatural. Is it sufficient? Does it not require at least some modification? Without being a slave to philosophical fashion, without servilely accepting every new system of thought, one cannot prevent time from doing its work. One cannot, if one is to act intelligently, and theology requires that we should, refuse to answer real problems in the form in which they are presented. It is not this or that individual who dictates these changes in the formulation of problems. It is not something we ourselves do. They are imposed upon us as upon everyone else. To recognize them does not involve any conniving with the spirit of the age, nor any relativism in regard to doctrine. Without recognizing them, one is unlikely to be able to say anything relevant at all. As will be seen, we can in fact return through them to the most traditional lines of thought. Let us then put the question. It is said that a universe might have existed in which man, though without necessarily excluding any other desire, would have his rational ambitions limited to some lower, purely human beatitude. Certainly, I do not deny it. But having said that, one is obliged to admit, indeed one is automatically affirming, that in our world as it is, this is not the case. In fact, the ambitions of man as he is cannot be limited in this way. Further, the word ambitions is no longer the right one, nor, as one must see even more clearly, is the word limits. In me, a real and personal human being, in my concrete nature, that nature I have in common with all real men, to judge by what my faith teaches me, and regardless of what is or is not revealed to me, either by reflective analysis or by reasoning, the desire to see God cannot be permanently frustrated without an essential suffering. To deny this is to undermine my entire credo, 
For is not this, in effect, the definition of the pain of the damned? And consequently, at least in appearance, a good and just God could hardly frustrate me unless I, through my own fault, turn away from him by choice. The infinite importance of the desire implanted in me by my Creator is what constitutes the infinite importance of the drama of human existence. It matters little that, in the actual circumstances of that existence, immersed as I am in material things and unaware of myself, this desire is not objectively recognized in its full reality and force. It will inevitably be so the day I at least see my nature as what it fundamentally is, if it is ever to appear to me in this way. Certainly, it is not now that reason dissimulates truth, or that the soul declines the view of reason, disconnected from corporeal limbs and drawn into itself. For this desire is not some accident in me. It does not result from some peculiarity, possibly alterable, of my individual being, or from some historical contingency whose effects are more or less transitory. A fortiori, it does not in any sense depend upon my deliberate will. It is in me as a result of my belonging to humanity as it is, that humanity which is, as we say, called For God's call is constitutive. My finality, which is expressed by this desire, is inscribed upon my very being as it has been put into the universe by God. And by God's will, I now have no other genuine end, no end really assigned to my nature or presented for my free acceptance under any guise, except that of seeing God. It remains necessary, therefore, to show how the supernatural is a free gift, not only in relation to a given hypothetical human nature, or in relation to a given hypothetical state of human nature, or even in relation to human nature in general as it may be abstracted from the observation of its concrete realization, but how it is so precisely in relation to the concrete human beings we are in relation to all those who make up mankind as it is, mankind created by God to see him, or, as we sometimes say, historic nature. It remains to be shown that the supernatural is absolutely freely given to me in my condition now. Otherwise, nothing at all has been said. For my situation in relation to my final end is no longer exactly the same as the situation of nature from which we first reasoned, whatever may be the link or absence of link which we thought we saw between that nature and its supernatural end. For instance, when St. Irenaeus declared, God makes himself seen by men when he wishes, to whom he wishes, and how he wishes, We can only understand his words, which are the expression of his faith, if we apply them directly to the human beings we are now, to all the people in the world, and first of all, to our first father in the concrete. In other words, the real problem, if problem it is, involves the being whose finality is 
already, if one can say so, wholly supernatural, for such is the case with us. It involves the creature whose vision of God marks not only a possible or futurable or most fitting end, but the end which, as far as it can be humanly judged, seems to have to be, since it is, by hypothesis, the end God assigns to that creature. As soon as I exist, in fact, all indetermination vanishes, and whatever might have been the case before, or whatever might have been in any other existence, no other finality now seems possible for me than that which is now really inscribed in the depths of my nature. There is only one end, and therefore I bear within me, consciously or otherwise, a natural desire for it. Whatever may be said of desire being elicited by or following upon a knowledge of the object, however indeterminate that object in fact remains, this natural desire is not only just as necessary, but just as determinate as its correlative end. To each thing, a single end is naturally appropriate, which it seeks by a natural necessity, for nature always tends to one thing says St. Thomas. And he says further, the natural appetite is determined to one thing. He is definitely concerned here with the end and the desire of a rational being possessing free will, whose acts are not determined to one thing in the same way as those of things lacking cognition. In terms reminiscent of the Scotists, Gregory of Valencia gives a similar explanation. To seek in this way, that is, naturally, beatitude in general, and in particular, is nothing other than to have some measure of, and capacity, to, nature. This objectively truly limits the common concept of beatitude, and even the particular concept of beatitude, to the enjoyment of God, which is known to be true beatitude. But it is placed in the freedom of no man to have or not to have this capacity of nature, since all men naturally, and to this extent necessarily, have it. Therefore, naturally and necessarily, all men seek beatitude in general, and in particular by an appetite that is natural and not elicited. And it is this same fundamental reason that makes St. Thomas conclude so certainly regardless of the contradictory evidence that common experience seems to suggest. Every intellect naturally desires the vision of divine substance. That is why, if I fail to achieve this, which is my end, it may be said that I have failed in everything. If I lose it, I am damned. And to be aware of such a situation is, for me, the pain of damnation. This poena damni, as I have said, can be explained in no other way. For, as Karl Rahner observes, the loss of a good which is possible, but not the object of an ontological ordination prior to free endeavor, voluntas ut res, can only be felt as a painful evil when the loser wills it freely. Hence, the statement of the Venerable Mary of the Incarnation I contemplated the court of heaven itself, that abode of the blessed, with all the happiness that scripture tells us is felt there, 
And all that happiness without God seemed to me nothing but misery and grief of heart. This is what Augustine expressed so magnificently in the Confessions. This only I know, that I am wretched apart from you, not only without, but also within myself, and all plenty that is not God is indigence. This is the human situation resulting from the free will of God, as Christian tradition has expressed it over and over again. Berul, as magnificent as he is severe, wrote, Let us bless God who has given us being, and a being which has a relationship with a movement towards him. That movement is impressed by the creator's power and the depths of his creature, deep within it from the very moment of its creation. And it is a movement so deep and so powerful that the will cannot affect it except to fight against it, that no sin we commit can hold it back, that hell itself cannot obliterate it. That movement will last as long as the creature itself and is inseparable from it. And the struggle that will take place in hell between the movement naturally imprinted upon the creature by the creator and the movements of will whereby the creature turns away from him will be one of the chief and everlasting torments of the damned. That inclination, which is natural to the soul, is hidden in this life, just as the soul is hidden from itself as long as it is buried within the body. It sees neither its own being nor what lies at the depths of its being. When it leaves the body, it will see itself and will then also feel the powerful weight of that inclination but without the power or freedom to make any good use of it. Such a being, then, has more than simply a natural desire, desiderium naturale, to see God, a desire which might be interpreted vaguely and widely, which might, as a later commentator on St. Thomas has said, simply be a desire conformed to nature, or, as another says, in proportion to nature. Juxta naturam. St. Thomas is most clear that such is not the case. The desire to see God is, for him, a desire of nature in man. Better, it is the desire of his nature. Nature desiderium. This expression, which he uses on several occasions, should be enough in itself to do away with any tendency to fancy interpretation. It therefore remains necessary to show how, even for a being animated with such a desire, there still is not and cannot be any question of such an end being owed in the same sense in which the word rightly gives offense. It remains to show how it is always by grace, even apart from the additional question of sin and its forgiveness, that God shows himself to him. Whether or not the hypothesis of a purely natural universe involving a purely natural end and the various conclusions that may be drawn from such a hypothesis do in fact date from a much earlier age, we certainly cannot dispense ourselves from envisaging this new aspect of the problem now. Whatever suppositions we may accumulate, this aspect will constantly reappear, demanding to be envisaged. We may re-echo the words of a great Thomist who died in 1351. No created intellect, 
human or angelic, is able by its natural powers to attain the vision of the divine essence in which perfect beatitude consists. It is able to out of divine grace. God cannot be seen in his essence unless by the grace of God. No one arrives to it of himself, but one to whom it is given from the gift of God. It is not in our power to see God, but in his power to appear. To be seen is in his will. The will of God is to be seen. For if he wills it, he is seen. If he does not will it, he is not seen. Now he appeared to Abraham because he willed to. To others he did not appear because he did not will to. For in effect... To maintain the gratuitousness of the supernatural simply by referring to another possible end, it is not enough to say, as we have just seen, that the same human nature might, in a different order of things, have been constituted with that other finality. This does not bring us sufficiently to grips with the question. One would have to be able further to affirm it of the same humanity, of the same human being, and ultimately of myself as I am. And this, if one considers it, makes no sense. For by putting forward the hypothesis of another order of things, one cannot help by that very fact supposing another humanity, a different human being, and thus a different me. In this purely natural universe which some have imagined, or have at least declared to be possible, my nature, they say, would be included. We may perhaps agree though it cannot be as certain as they think, except in the most abstract sense, since it must be said at the same time that this nature would be materially different. But even then, it would not be the same me. You may put into this hypothetical world a man as like me as you can, but you cannot put me into it. Between that man who, by hypothesis, is not destined to see God, and the man I am in fact, Between that futurable and this existing being, there remains only a theoretical, abstract identity, without the one really becoming the other at all. For the difference between them is not merely one of individuation, but one of nature itself. What can possibly be learned from the situation of the first, the hypothetical man, in regard to the gratuitousness of the gift given to the second, the man that I am in reality? I can only repeat that ultimately it is solely in relation to me, in relation to us all, to our nature as it is, this actual mankind to which we belong, that this question of gratuitousness can be asked and answered. In other words, put in terms which, though not those used by St. Thomas, express his ideas faithfully, If it is true that the power to see the divine essence is the specific obediential power, potentia obedientialis, of man as an intellectual creature, it is important to demonstrate that in the world as it actually is, this power still remains in that sense wholly obediential. Put in yet another way, if I should be able to declare unequivocally that God gives himself to me, and makes himself to be seen by me freely, and quite independently, then that supernatural gift must be clearly seen to be free, 
not merely in relation to some generic nature, abstract and theoretical, but actually in relation to the concrete nature in which I, here and now, share. Just as it is the gratuitousness of God's plan now, and not of some hypothetical plan that we need to know, so too it is God's plan now that is the theologian's true object of contemplation. We must be grateful to Pierre Le Goulou for reminding us of this. It was thus that the great scholastics understood it. One may point out that they did not deny the hypotheses of the moderns, nor would I dream of doing so. But it remains true that they did not put them forward, and when they spoke of the gratuitousness of the supernatural, they did not mean it in terms of some abstract human nature as envisaged in those hypotheses. They would have found such an approach most unsatisfactory. St. Thomas, for instance, says that God wishes to give to someone alikui, grace, and glory proceeds from his sheer generosity. Alikui, to someone, to some person at whom we can point. To someone, to you, to me, this very day. God can be no more bound by our nature as it is than by the nature of some humanity that might have been. I do not believe that it keeps the truth of the dogma intact to suggest, as Palmieri, among others, does in his great Tractatus de Ordine Supernaturali, that human desire can claim the vision of God from the moment of its being no longer the desire of pure nature, but of nature raised up or called. This would hardly allow for the liberty of God in distributing his gifts. It would make supernatural beatitude no longer truly a grace, but, as Fenelon pointed out, a debt given the title of grace. Then there is the hypothesis that seeks to posit a purely natural universe in which man could claim natural happiness from God. Now, alongside this, another universe is imagined, our own in fact, in which man still requires happiness from God this time supernatural. Whether we add the two together or set them up against each other, we can hardly hope to find in them the gratuitousness we are looking for. It is always within the real world, within a world whose supernatural finality is not hypothetical but a fact, and not by following any supposition that takes us out of the world, that we must seek an explanation of the gratuitousness of the supernatural insofar as the human mind can do so. But this is precisely what the modern hypothesis we are concerned with fails to do. I do not say that it is false, but I do say that it is insufficient, for it completely fails to show, as people seem to think, and as by the logic of the theory it should, that I could have had another, more humble, wholly natural destiny. It only demonstrates presuming it to be well-founded, that in another universe, a being other than myself, with a nature similar to mine, could have been given this humbler destiny. But, I repeat, what has this other being really to do with me? What have I to do with him? To convince me that I might really have had this humbler destiny, humbler, but, note, also less onerous, you need only show it to me, even momentarily, 
as something really imprinted upon me in my nature as it is. Most people would agree that this is precisely what is, by hypothesis, impossible. My destination is something ontological and not something I can change as anything else changes its destination. We must, therefore, seek along some other path for a more real certainty of the gratuitousness we need to find. There may be those who fear that reasoning of this kind is dictated by a nominalism or an empiricism which allows no specific reality to nature, but wants only to see the individual in the concrete. This would be a misunderstanding. There is no question of making human nature a mere abstraction. I must recognize that I, as an individual, participate in the same nature as Socrates, for instance, or any simple native, or every other man who exists or ever will exist in this world. Mankind is a reality. Human nature is, in its way, a reality. But the fact that we all share in it is precisely, at least in part, because we all have the same essential finality. If someone tells me of another nature that might exist with another finality in another universe, and this is in fact what is being done by those who speak of the futurable of pure nature, I can feel only the most abstract link with it, however much they may describe it as being like ours. Such an abstract link cannot possibly lead to the consequence we are seeking. The great scholastics, with their absolute realism, proposed no such thing. This inability of modern theory to carry through to the end the part for which it was conceived appears more and more clearly as, under the influence of Christian thought, we come to a better idea of what a person is, and to an ontology of a more concrete kind. But we must not make the mistake of thinking that this is, in essence, a new view. Rather, it is a return to the point of view of past tradition, which was far more personalist and far more existential, though not existentialist, than its language always leads one to suspect. Excessive naturalism and essentialism belong much more to a stream of modern philosophy, which has to some extent invaded the manuals of scholasticism but in doing so has perverted the traditional teaching it was intended to transmit. On the other hand, in the Fathers, and especially in Augustine, we do not find this clear-cut opposition between an abstract essential order, a de jure order, and a concrete historical order, which is merely de facto, an opposition which fills a large part of certain modern treatises. For them, the created essence is itself historical, and history in that sense is essential. The fathers certainly never dreamt of reasoning from the basis of a pure abstraction unconnected with the concrete natures that actually exist in our universe. They spoke without doubt, as St. Maximus says, of the nature of the humble human being that we are, they never sought to understand the economy of salvation revealed in Christ by envisaging other merely possible economies. But it would, I think, be wrong to conclude that they were therefore lacking in any genuinely metaphysical thought. It is a conclusion that is sometimes drawn. 
But it does not, for instance, do justice to St. Augustine's thought to declare, not entirely without exaggeration, that for him the term nature is not to be understood in at all the same sense as it came to have later in scholastic theology, and to add that this term designates only a type of particular historical and concrete man. Nor does it do him justice to say further that the root of the problem was bound to escape his scriptural realism and the concrete nature of his genius, or that his method and turn of mind made him incapable of a certain indispensable kind of abstraction, or that his thought, wholly immersed in the order of actual existence, was powerless to see through to the eternal order of essences. It does not do him justice to see in his analysis of the human mind and soul no more than the workings of his extraordinary gifts as a psychologist, nor, when not actually denouncing it as romanticism, to allow only an empirical value to the famous sentence from the Confessions, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Medieval theologians saw it very differently. It is certainly true that St. Augustine's thought always appeared engaged in the reality of lived experience. But that does not mean that he never got beyond empiricism. To claim, as has even been done, that he only treats the problems relative to man's last end within the hypothesis of an elevated nature, or to say with Bagnes, he speaks of facts or with Bernard de Rubes, from the laws present in divine providence and manifest in the revelation of the scriptures, is altogether too superficial. As Gilson rather wryly says of these attempts to explain away his ideas, whatever they may say, Augustine was not wholly unworthy to be called a philosopher. More recently, Pierre C. Cotier has shown that Contrary to a somewhat widespread opinion, St. Augustine possesses a very definite metaphysic of the world, that his principles, once established, highlight in a startling way many texts which are often seen only as more or less approximate concrete descriptions, and that he analyzes the metaphysical structure of created being very profoundly. St. Bonaventure spoke long ago of Augustine, who was the loftiest of metaphysicians. As for the great scholastics, though their thought is undeniably of a much more abstract nature, and their curiosities often subtler, their approach is basically the same. When St. Thomas, in particular, takes up the problems of our last end, he does it always both by analyzing created spirit in its essence and at the same time remaining within our universe, that universe whose goal, as he constantly says, is a supernatural one. Hence, the difficulty some commentators find when faced with those passages where this is made particularly clear, a difficulty they try to avoid in a way similar to the one we have seen used in connection with the Father's. According to the scholastics, St. Thomas too would only have spoken in this way while placing himself in the hypothesis of the historical order. 
For instance, when he says in the Summa Contra Gentilis that the angels do not rest content with their natural knowledge of God, it is, they say, because he is speaking of fact, de facto, since they were created with the faith of a supernatural beatitude. This is the view of Bañez. In our own day, Pierre Blas Romier has made this comment more general. If St. Thomas, he says, did not explicitly speak of the idea of a nature without any supernatural finality, it was because he was content to reply to the immediate demands of the dogma he was studying. One should therefore recognize that his weakness lay in not setting out from the start to build a metaphysical totality on a central intuition. Such comments leave one thoughtful. At least they admit, without feeling the need to refer to the idea beloved of so many moderns, that St. Thomas succeeded in replying to the immediate demands of dogma. The difficulty they express confirms me in my conviction. St. Thomas deals only with real man, and in this he is closer to modern thinking than many of today's Thomists. We do not find in him, any more than in the Fathers, that radical separation between abstract essence and the existing world which characterizes certain present-day scholastic speculation. He does not reason from a disexistentialized human essence. When he writes, for instance, since the soul has been made by God immediately, it will therefore not be able to be happy unless it sees God immediately. Whatever weight we attach to his argument, whatever its exact significance, how could anyone maintain that for him, in a purely natural universe, the human soul would not have been directly created by God? St. Thomas does not deal with a certain number of difficulties in regard to this matter, which were only raised later on, and which we have to take into account nowadays. Thus, he does not treat in all its details the problem of gratuitousness. The philosophers or the heretics with whom he was arguing set him, as we have seen, a different task. It remains nonetheless true that, when he does deal with it, he never brings the finality itself into question. It seems likely, then, that had he ever had the problem put more immediately before him, he would have considered any solution dependent on the hypothesis of a purely natural order. In other words, the hypothesis of a different man placed in a different world, to be verbal and irrelevant. No system entirely constructed on such a foundation stone could legitimately base itself on him. Sought along this path of a different finality, the solution to the problem of the gratuitousness of the supernatural could only really be found in the following way. It would have to be possible to note in the actual course of every real and personal existence, or at least if one envisages not so much individuals in themselves as the humanity of which they are a part and which unites them by the assignation of a single destiny in the actual course of our race's concrete historic existence. A definite moment when God intervenes either to assign an end which till then had been in doubt or to change the end previously assigned to me. Either hypothesis would be absurd 
if one considers it. In either case, one would be supposing a radical extrinsicism, which must destroy either the idea of nature or that of finality, or possibly both. Neither the epic of the universe nor the acting out of my personal destiny could include such a second start. Such a supposition is, in any case, at least apparently and in principle, excluded by the axiom which everyone admits that the so-called state of pure nature can only be posited as a futurable, as something which has never actually existed, even for a moment. However, it becomes impossible to escape from it once one has produced the theory that an end cannot be given freely for a definite being existing here and now, unless there had first of all been a different end for him that was objectively, concretely realizable. In other words, once one has made pure nature in the modern sense the indispensable and sole guarantee of the gratuitousness of the supernatural. In fact, this modern theory of a spiritual nature, whether angelic or human, with a purely natural finality, was born and developed in the intellectual context of a watered-down idea of what finality is. What it assumed at its beginnings, though not always very explicitly, was something very different from what most of those who hold it today would assume. This was that every man, in our world as it is, before having received the grace of baptism or any other enabling grace, was in that state of pure nature, at least if one excludes original sin and its consequences. Finality was therefore considered as something fairly extrinsic, not a destiny inscribed in man's very nature, directing him from within, and which he could not ontologically escape, but a mere destination given him from outside when he was already in existence. This is certainly what Suarez supposes. For example, for him, the punishment of Adam's sin was essentially the withdrawn of the supernatural finality which God had bestowed upon human nature as one gift, among others, added over and above nature. According to this idea, put forward again in so many words in modern times by Father Philippe Donnelly, if God had not then envisaged and determined upon the plan of redemption, Adam and all his descendants, all those people whose names and histories we know, all existing mankind to which we ourselves belong, all these people, ipsissimi, would have had to merit, in a nature left essentially intact by sin, by the use of a free will left to itself, but keeping all its original strength, a certain state of happiness in its own order and level, in suo ordine et gradu, or as some express it, a certain natural possession of God, as the only end to which they were called by anything actually inscribed within them. Had God not redeemed us, comments Blas Romier, we should be born viatoris, journeying toward a possession to be won by the right use of our free will. In short, fallen man, brought back by this fall to his natural state, was no longer called. In the framework of ideas which this theory presupposes, 
there would be no obstacle to a supernatural beatitude reaching a stage where, at any given moment, by God's decision, it is given an addition to the essential, holy, natural happiness that is desired, postulated, required, and won by nature. This seems indeed a most simple and satisfactory explanation of the whole thing. This theory had begun to take shape well before Suarez. Cajetan was not properly speaking its inventor, for it was not produced all of a piece in a day, but he was one of its chief initiators. He certainly would seem to have been the first to claim the patronage of St. Thomas for it in his commentary on the Summa Theologica. As I noted earlier, it is usual now to speak in this context of historic nature. Now, we must not forget that this historic nature, with the desire to see God which goes with it and marks it out in contrast with pure nature, involves, according to Cajetan, both positive revelation and the objective knowledge of certain supernatural effects observed in the world. It was far from being that nature first established in another state and belonging to all those who make up the human race now. It could only be taken to be so if the theory of pure nature were explicitly stated and in Cajetan's day that had not yet been done. In other words, according to this notion, which Pierre Gardiel rightly judges to be singular, and which is the earliest notion to be formulated of historic nature. There is no room for what Maurice Blondel was to call the transnatural state. Since then, various theologians have taken up this singular opinion. They still understand historic nature in Cajetan's sense, which is also that of Suarez. Even among those who appear nowadays to give it the greatest depth and consistency, there are a certain number who, basically, mean nothing else by it. When they say with the rest that the state of pure nature has not in fact ever existed, or that historic man has been in fact created in a supernatural order, it becomes clear in what an attenuated, or perhaps rather extenuated, transformed sense one must understand their statement. For them, the ultimate destination of the universe has been changed in the course of time, without this fact making any change in the structure of that universe or the essence of the beings who constitute it. Supposing that God had not willed to make himself seen, or even that to see him were utterly impossible, everything that goes to make up the universe and man would still be exactly the same. This paradox has been upheld by various commentators of St. Thomas, for instance, Billuart and Gotti. Yet one informed historian of Thomas thought, Pierre A. Mott, has written, One could dream of no more categorical reverse inflicted by commentators on the idea of the master. We know how firmly St. Thomas held that finality is something intrinsic affecting the depths of the being. We know, too, what reality he attached to what he called the order of the universe, ordo universi, or order of the parts of the universe in relation to each other. So much so that for him, a single change in the natures making up the universe would be enough to mean that one was really dealing with a different universe. 
Duns Scotus here joins with St. Thomas in a general reproof of those who, by distending the organic bonds of reality too much, make the substance of the universe discontinuous, inconnexam. To both these men, everything in the real world is linked together. Creation is homogeneous. Here I will rest content for the moment with pointing out that if the conception inherited from Cajetan and completed by Suarez is all that really follows from the premises I have been criticizing, in itself it appears to have little meaning. One can, of course, readily admit that the supernatural finality of our universe has no direct relationship with, for instance, the laws of physics or chemistry, and that therefore, if per impossibile, this universe should be suddenly deprived of any supernatural finality, those laws would remain unchanged. But can anyone reasonably say that the same would be true of man, of the foundations of his intellectual and moral life? And even supposing such a radical change had no repercussion on the material universe or the knowledge man can have of it, would it not be change enough that man himself was not exactly the same? And finally, on the other hand, how could one allow that the creator would so recast his work? What possible acceptable meaning could there be in such repetitions of the creative acts? If God really destines man to see him, one can understand his not actually admitting him to that vision from the first, but there can be no understanding the idea that he only destines him to it from a given moment of his life or of world history. Either the idea of pure nature must be conceived as being actually in our world now, as its protagonists see it. In that case, if we are not to be led into absurdity, we must return to its earlier significance, which never questioned the supernatural character of the last end, but only described the structure proper to created spirit in our world. Or this idea of pure nature must be related to a different universe, since a purely natural order has never in fact existed, as the great majority of theologians would hold nowadays. In that case, being quite abstract, though there is nothing to criticize in it of itself, it does not appear wholly suitable for the service expected of it. However, whether one adopts or rejects it, if one succeeds in making clear, as at all cost we must, that the supernatural end can in no case be the object of any requirement or debt, even by a being who here and now has no other end, then there will no longer be any need to refer to this indirect consideration of an order that is purely natural, even as to its finality. We have seen that it is not an adequate consideration. Perhaps we may now go so far as to admit that it is not a necessary one either. By trying, without seeking any fiction, to take us beyond the limits of our world as God has made it, the only world we know, to show that the gift God offers of himself is and can only be totally free, and that one could never imagine any loftier or purer gratuitousness, I think we are embarking upon a really effective way, a way along which others may happily advance further. 
it seems to me too that this is the chief way opened to us by tradition. If I succeed in this, without totally rejecting or obliging anyone else to reject every idea of pure nature, then I shall have reinforced this all too fragile rampart of a fortress, which defends for us all a truth older and loftier than all our reasonings and theories, a truth which the church's magisterium has recalled to us many times in the most explicit terms and reiterated quite recently without ever having allowed any one explanatory theory to become tied to it. And if there are those who feel that it is impossible to preserve that divine truth, except by reference to the system of pure nature, I would be the first to tell them that not merely have they every right to maintain it, but that they would be wrong to reject it.